everyone, and welcome to From the Heart, a podcast brought to you by Catholic Education Diocese of Wollongong. My name's Josie Cook, and as we adjust to social distancing and working and learning remotely due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we're going to be sharing stories with you about our experiences as a way of staying connected and being in community with each other. Our guest today is Peter Hill, Director of Schools Diocese of Wollongong. Peter and I are sitting in the same room together, but we're being very responsible and making sure we keep the recommended distance between each other. So hopefully you'll be able to hear us clearly. Well, Peter, if nothing else goes right with this interview, at least we've got the social distancing bit right. Welcome, Peter. Josie, good to be with you. Um, You're our very first guest on the From the Heart podcast, so thank you for taking the time to chat with me. Great pleasure. Okay, so you've been in the role as Director of Schools for a total of 64 days, Mm -hmm. and during this time the Diocese has experienced devastating bushfires, flash floods, and now we're in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. Talk about a baptism of fire. Mm. Any regrets about taking on the new role and moving down to Wollongong? Look, absolutely not. Um, I spoke with Bishop Brian recently, and he said, since your arrival, we've had fire, floods, and the flu, and the only thing in common is you. And so I think he's holding me personally responsible for uh, the presentation of these three major uh, social impacts in the diocese. But no, look, no regrets whatsoever in terms of joining the good diocese of of Wollongong and the people of of Wollongong for that matter. Um, I was saying to my wife just the other day, there's no buyer's remorse. I um, haven't woken up one morning and said, oh my God, what have I done? Uh, Far from it. In fact, um, not only have I felt um, most welcome, I've uh, also felt like um, I've joined a group of really capable, um, dedicated people of goodwill. And I feel very much at home here, Josie. And in saying that, I, I firmly believe I'm in the right place at the right time doing the right thing. Well, that's good because I'm pleased to hear that because we're very happy to have you here. <laughs> Careful. Not that we didn't like Peter Turner. We love Peter Turner, but, you know. There's no returns policy. Remember that. <laughs> All right. Well, before we dive too deeply into this interview, um, tell us a bit about Peter Hill. Yeah, sure. Um, Brisbane boy. Um, actually, uh, my origins are I was born in Namble in the good state of Queensland, which in terms of Queensland, uh, state of origin selection makes me well and truly a Queenslander and so I've said to many people you might take the boy out of Queensland but you don't take the Queenslander out of the boy. Um, Educated in in Brisbane, Um, interesting I um, was educated at the uh, in the only Franciscan college in Australia um, by the Franciscans at Kedron, a place called Padua College and then later on uh, worshipped until recent times in the only Jesuit parish run by the Society of Jesus in Brisbane, St Ignatius at Tawong. So a couple of um, unique things there. Um, Married to my beautiful wife, Josephine, we have um, two children. One's at university, one's finishing um, her uh, final year of of secondary schooling at the moment. Um, A small fluffy dog that I didn't want uh, called Macy. (laughs) And uh, my daughter reminds me regularly that the greatest love that exists is between the grumpy dad and the dog they didn't want. And so we do share a great affection for each other. Uh, And at the moment, living between um, Wollongong and Brisbane, which is proving to be a little bit problematic. Um, 
I started my life as a, a primary school teacher uh, and uh, started that uh, at De La Salle College at Scarborough, which is, if you know um, Queensland, it's on the peninsula, about 30 kilometres outside of Brisbane. Um, spent some time as um, a, a primary school teacher working in uh, religious institute schools or congregational schools, um, then became an APRE, um, deputy principal, became a principal at a fairly young age, had a bit of a midlife crisis, went and worked in healthcare for a bit, went and ran a system of, system of schools in the Diocese of Bathurst, um, was sort of came back to, to the Archdiocese of Brisbane, um, worked as Director of Employee Services there, and uh, have been blown this way um, to do this role now and very pleased to do so. So that's a bit of a thumbnail sketch. That's good. Um, What made you decide to become an educator in the Catholic school system? Yeah, I... um, That's a complex question that I'm not sure that I can answer in just a really couple of sentences. Um, I think there are three things in life that are really important that uh, for many of us we have no control of. Um, one is the quality of our health. Uh, it's our parents that we had um, who raised us and the quality of our education that we received. Um, and those three factors are, are critically important to a person and their future life. And I guess uh, one of the things that, I, that resonated with me as a young man when I made that decision was um, the liberating power of an education. And I probably wouldn't have had the language to say that at the time, but I did understand the importance of um, making a difference to a person's life in a really palpable way. And um, offering someone an education, and particularly a, a child in formative years, uh, it can be a game changer. And there's lots of stories uh, of the quality of the education and, and the the experience between teacher and student that has changed people's lives. And there is um, a nobility and a, and a joy that comes with that type of work. And I was really drawn to that as a young man. And I think in addition to that, um, why Catholic education? I think I said at the uh, education mass recently, um, I've spent my whole working life working in ministries of, of the Catholic church. And for me, it would only be half the story if I didn't have the opportunity to do that. Um, simply because uh, you, when you work in ministries of the church, you have the opportunity to talk about your spirituality, to talk about God, to talk about faith uh, when, you're, when you're in the workplace. And that's something that's quite unique and special to all the ministries of the church, whether that be health, education or welfare. Okay. Um, you've taken on a variety of different occupations during your career and you seem to be quite open to change. Mm. Um, so what influence has your faith had on your life and the big decisions that you've made? Uh, uh, huge, in a word. Um, there is that marvellous expression which is attend with a listening heart, um, yeah, which is from the Benedictine tradition, or, or listen um, with, with an open heart. And the Spirit has very much worked in mysterious ways in my life. I think I said recently, um, God does have a sense of humour, just have a look at my resume. Um, but have felt um, very powerfully drawn or, or called to different places at different times in my life um, in inexplicable ways that very much, I believe, has been um, the Spirit um, guiding my direction at different times. Um, and so in those decisions, I think I can recall one of my very first meetings with Bishop Brian. He said to me, 
very simply, um, thanks for saying yes. And I just said to him in response, I don't think I had much choice in this one. You know, so um, listening to, to, to that um, call has been very powerful, not just in my working life, but in my personal um, life. Often as a family, you know, we would have made decisions that would appear um, perhaps completely illogical on paper, um, but there was just a sense of this is the right thing to do. Uh, and uh, having a great confidence about that because of, uh, I guess, being attentive to the spirit in your life. So would you consider yourself a head or a heart person or a bit of both? Oh, I think I'm, I am a, more of a head person. Um, and um, for those that know me, I'm, I'm a raging introvert and people often um, say, oh, how could that be, you know, given what you have to do? I describe myself as a trained extrovert. Um, and in saying that, um, there, I spend a lot of time inside my head and sometimes far too much time there. Um, but um, at the same time, I think I do have um, the empathy uh, and compassion that goes with the concrete, sequential and logical. Uh, and I think that's, I've developed that as I've become an older man uh, and because of the influence of a good woman in my life. Okay. Well, for an introvert, you've been taking a lot of time um, since you've taken on the role of the director to have a strong visual presence in both schools and the education centres throughout the diocese. And you've had to make some really tough decisions as this corona um, virus has unfolded. So what do you think makes a good leader? I've got to say, um, from a trained introvert's um, <laughs> perspective the introverts who will be listening to this will know that i'm just absolutely exhausted by some of those things too because um we get our energy as introverts i suppose from that sense of um uh, having be, being alone without being lonely uh, and there's a sense of withdrawal that's where we get our, our, our energy from I, I guess you've asked me a really complex and difficult question and there have been volumes written about leadership so i guess um my view of what makes a good leader is that leaders are primarily dealers in hope. Um, and by being a dealer in hope, um, a leader must have a vision of where um, he or she needs to take a group of people. Uh, and they need to have the capacity to be able to, to see more, to, to look beyond the horizon um, and to see that sense of clarity. So it's a bit like saying, we're, we're sailing the city to Hobart Yacht Race. Um, you know the destination, how you get there is going to be influenced on the people around you. But it's no good having a vision because a vision not shared is an hallucination. And so you've got to have the capacity to communicate with people about what that vision is and to gain that collective in, and shared understanding. So that's my first thing. I think you've got to ha have a vision and to be able to see more. The second is you've got to be authentic. Um, I think Australians in particular uh, have uh, quite a refined nose uh, for someone who's inauthentic and you only become authentic by becoming comfortable in your own skin uh, and you know, to use that Socratic expression, you need to know thyself and the only way that you can really get to, to know thyself is to develop some um, calluses on your character and some spiritual scars. and. You do that through the journey of life. You do that through um, good critical reflection on yourself, 
um, not just listening to feedback, but changing your behaviour as a leader because of that feedback that you will receive, um, continuing to work on your education um, and, your, and your understanding of your own faith and spirituality, and so that you know what you're capable of and the limits of your capability as well, and you, you know when and how to put the right person in the right place doing the right thing at the right time. That's the definition of a good leader. Um, and then the, the last element would be, I think, which is important for any leader is the capacity to be able to revise their position. And so uh, you can walk into a, a meeting or, a, or into a gathering of people and you might have a view of, of what you are, uh, are contemplating and you may have made your decision um, based on the material that you've read in preparation for that meeting. But if you are a bona fide leader and you've spoken last and you've listened to the people around the table and in the spirit of wisdom and discernment and true discernment uh, in the Catholic tradition where you have listened and prayed over that, and if you have the capacity to revise your position based on the evidence and the wisdom in the room, that's also an excellent leadership trait in my opinion. And that takes courage. Do you know what I mean? To be able to self-reflect and to sort of alter your behaviour and then to change your mind about a decision due to information that you gathered along the way. Yes, it does. Um, and I think with um, you don't do leadership alone and so you're only as good as the people around you. And um, you've touched on... Um, you, you mentioned courage, but to me um, that courage comes juxtaposed with vulnerability uh, and so to uh, to show those vulnerabilities and that's not particularly cool and sexy at the moment in society um, is to show those vulnerabilities to those that are close to you um, it, I think is another strength and dimension of, of leadership. Well speaking about being vulnerable I think we're all in a bit of a vulnerable stage at the moment um, since you've arrived you've been going out and t making it a priority to go out and visit schools How's everybody coping with the current situation? And what moments of grace have you witnessed while you've been out and yeah. about? Yeah, what, what a very powerful question. I guess first and foremost, it's given me great um, strength to visit schools at the moment. And I'm really pleased that I've maintained that in my uh, work program because in visiting schools, I've still had the opportunity to um, witness firsthand um, the work that um, our teachers and our staff and our principals and leadership teams in schools are doing and um, working incredibly hard to maintain the continuity of students learning um, and particularly our year 12 students who I'm worried about um, but the efforts that have gone in and the goodwill that, it, that has been offered in, in these really troubling times um, is just quite inspiring. There is that corny expression that we heard during the bushfires, which is often these situations bring the best and worst out of us as Australians. And clearly, um, there has, I've seen a lot of the best of us at the moment. Um, and, and again, my worry is that how long can we, we sustain that without getting overly fatigued? You talked about graced moments. Um, and there is a great, with a great sense of humility. I've, I've observed some very powerful graced moments and those moments of grace have occurred where the face of Jesus has been shown to another human being and that's been where I've, I've seen it in my school visits um, teachers and leadership teams um, comforting a parent who's 
business has just collapsed because mm. of this uh, and they have lost their livelihood and they don't know how they're going to make mortgage payments and pay school fees a and they've literally had to close not just one or two businesses but a number of them where they've got commitments and had to take uh, had to get rid of staff and make them unemployed um, and watching the comfort offered to them has been a grace moment it's been watching um, the teachers and the care and compassion they offer to the parent who doesn't have mastery of the English language and says, how can I offer um, this online learning to one of my children when I, I, I actually am struggling to read the page or the instructions that I, I have and the support that they're offering um, the, the parents who find themselves in those positions. It's just witnessing um, the care that our teachers have gone in terms of preparing packs um, for students with disabilities who can't go online and engage in that way. And, and they've spent their weekend and days putting together packs with instructions for parents with every likely material that you think you're going to need to undertake um, the learning that goes at home, which also did include a can of shaving cream where the, 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 <laughs> I have visions of these children at home um, spraying the windows of the family home with shaving cream and drawing letters in it and saying that's what we do at school uh, mum and dad and it reminded me of that that meme that's doing the round at the moment which you know is it won't be the scientists um, that discover a cure uh, for COVID-19 it will be the parents who are doing the uh, remote learning at home um, and, and I guess the last moment of grace which uh, I think speaks powerfully of the leadership of our of our own bishop is um, where he's purchased groceries for a single mother and her wow. her children um, in the supermarket where he saw clearly that they are in desperate need. I think they're all grace moments. Wow, that's leading by example, isn't it? Mm. Okay. The spread of the COVID-19 means that we've been asked to work remotely if possible and to stay home with our families. And for some of us, ex particularly extroverts like me, <laughs> it's a challenge as we adapt to this new way of life and being. Your family live in Brisbane, as you mentioned earlier, and the closure of the Queensland border means that you've now been separated from each mm. other. As a dad and as a husband, who I'm sure would like to be there to support his family, it must be hard. Yeah, it is. Um, interesting enough, um, my wife Josephine, um, you know, jokingly said to me, it's not like you're going to Abu Dhabi, you're really just down the road. And the other day she said to me, well, you may as well have gone to bloody Abu Dhabi because <laughs> it's, it's almost as accessible. Um, and to me, it sort of speaks volumes about who we are as a country because on this occasion, we've been really exposed as a country and we haven't responded as a country we've responded by individual states and there's this real sense of um, being disconnected for me from um, literally being locked out of my state of origin um, <laughs> and not being able to cross a border that's just a couple of hundred kilometers up the road um, but it has been difficult um, and um, you know um, I, th I think I've left my wife with the responsibility of being a single parent which is not ideal and parenting by um, by distance and and remotely isn't isn't easy either um, the fact that my daughter Olivia is in year 12 and navigating a whole lot of things has also been a challenge and they were due to to come here and, and spend Easter um, 
you know, no. in, in Wollongong. And so none of those things will happen. But um, let's not be, while we're, while we're around in our own sort of, you know, um, self-indulgence for a moment, and we, we've got to be a little, have a little reality check here. And as I said to everyone the other night, when we were, we were uh, you know, FaceTiming and the like, um, we have our health, um, we have jobs, um, although the part-time jobs my children have, have had have, have evaporated, um, and we have food on the table, and so there's a lot to be thankful for, uh, particularly in these times. In hindsight, knowing that everything that's unfolded, would you have made a different decision and maybe brought everybody down with you? Um, no, okay. that's a short answer to that. Um, I think Peter Turner could have offered his resignation 12 months later. That would have been more convenient. Um, but that, <laughs> He's so selfish. Yeah, that, that wasn't to be. No, no. Um, there was no, there's no regrets about that either. Uh, very clearly we needed to provide a continuity um, to my daughter's learning in Year 12. It's a very critical time. My son is undertaking some studies um, at Queensland University of Technology that aren't offered anywhere else other than perhaps RMIT. Um, so he needed to maintain the continuity of his learning um, and uh, my wife had accepted a, a job late in the year that coincided with my appointment here. So there was no need to disrupt their, um, their lives. But as my friends have jokingly said to me, I said, Peter, it's normally the kids that leave home, not the parent. No. Um, so, but no, no, uh, that was the best way still to have managed all that. Um, so how is your daughter coping with all the interruptions to her final year of school? Grumpy. Um, very, <laughs> Why? Very, very grumpy. And look, she's got every right to be, I think. You know, like... Um, it was meant to be her year. Uh, yeah. It was meant to be, 2020 was meant to be her year where um, she could shine and have that sense of it was um, for the formal. She was going to assist in the, um, the production of the school musical, you know, camps and retreats and the various events that um, were going to happen as part of her life. Um, and all of that hasn't really, has vanished. Uh, and so... Uh, there's that sense of grief and loss associated with that that she doesn't uh, that, that that not only she will feel, but um, all of the Year Twelve students right across this country. So, I think as parents, and as educators, and as a community, we just need to be a bit sensitive of that and wrap around our young people, particularly our young people in, in that final year, um, because it's been most unusual. There's also heightened anxiety among them. Um, in terms of their their final assessments, the, the the changes that are going to happen to those assessments and how that will impact in terms of their choices and how they'll mm. access university um, next year uh, or work for that matter. Um, and so uh, they're also really uh, anxious about all of that uh, and we just need to watch out for them. Um, when I was in grade five, I went to a, I grew up in a small country town and in grade five went to this little Catholic school that had 32 kids and it was the first time ever that we got invited to go to the, uh, a camp at Lake Colorado Lorraine with the public school. And anyway, I had an injury and um, ended up in hospital and I couldn't go and I was so disappointed. But to this day, I can still remember that disappointment. So I can just imagine what these poor year 12 students are going through. Yeah. Yeah tough for them. I, I, I'm sure it is and um, we, we need to also think about ways that hopefully when we get to the other side of this and we do resume school as normal we can give them some opportunities um, to mark that rite of passage from mm. being a school student to entering um, work or training 
or further education, uh, but we, we ritualise that process for them and give them something that, that there's, is memorable perhaps in different ways other than just being um, remembering 2020 as the year when there was no toilet paper on the shelf in the supermarket. <laughs> That's so true. Um, at the recent Dyson Education Mass, you quoted Pope Francis who said, we live in enormously complex and challenging times. There are times of great threat and times of great um, opportunity. And you said earlier that a leader needs to have a vision for hope. Mm. So moving forward from this current situation, what does Catholic education in the future look like for you? Yeah. Um, if I can start by telling a story that's not related to, to your question whatsoever, but I'll get there. So that's okay. if you're Mine patient wasn't with either, me. so that's okay. <laughs> um, I worked a little bit uh, in healthcare and I worked um, at the Martyr at South Brisbane. Now, uh, if you know the Martyr Hospital, it's um, all on one site and it's adults, mothers and peds, public and private, co-located. That's a very big hospital. Uh, and so it takes up most of the, the corner of South Brisbane on Stanley Street. And at that time, um, it obviously was established by the Sisters of Mercy. And these were remarkable women, like remarkable women. Um, they were hospital administrators. Sister Angela Mary Doyle is, is still alive and still very much inspiring. Um, they were pathologists, radiographers, um, you know, nurses, and were, were seriously smart and dedicated women. And I got to know them because they were, there were many of them still living on site at the, at the convent at the Martyr at the time. Not anymore. Uh, and, and part of this process that they were going through was, with the greatest of respect, preparing for their own extinction as a religious order and doing that with the pragmatism that um, Sisters of Mercy have. And they were doing that by creating a public juridic um, person uh, that would continue their work once they're gone. And in my discussions with them, I said, why did you continue in hospitals when Medicare came in? Because essentially, you had achieved your goal of universal access to healthcare. And um, they simply said, because there needed to be an alternative voice in our society. And they're right. Uh, and so if you translate that to Catholic education for a moment, and you think about the importance of Catholic education, as a country, um, we have a number of, we, we recognise that parents are the first educators of their children and then they make choices for their children. Uh, and so there are a range of educational options that are available to us uh, in this country uh, for our parents making choices about how they want to educate their children. We're in a very fortunate position, underline very, that um, Catholic schools in this country receive um, state and federal um, funding from the government. Um, in saying that though, Catholic education still comes at a cost to parents because um, that funding only represents around about 80% of the funding we receive. And so parents need to, need to provide the difference through the way of a school fee. But first and foremost, I hope we remain as part of the landscape of education in this country in the future. And I say that with all seriousness because um, as part of those times of great threat and great opportunity, there are people in Australian society would prefer to have no Catholic schools and just have government schools. That's a solution, but I'm not, I don't think it's a very good one for this country. Um, I think part of being a Catholic school is adding to um, the social capital of the country. And by that, you know, we look to the future to have 
men and women who are going to participate in our society who have a different view of the world than someone who comes from a different background. And that is a Catholic worldview. Uh, and that they look at the world with a Catholic intellect, a Catholic spirit and a Catholic heart. Uh, and that's critical, I think, to the contribution of society. Um, there are some things that will change. The context that Catholic schools operate in at the moment is very, very different. Um, but in saying that, there are some things that will also just remain the same. Um, first and foremost, our Catholic schools have got to be good places of learning um, and, and, and always have and always will be. And they need to retain that sense of excellence in learning and, and offer that to our young people. Um, in addition to that, I think as I look to the future, I'd like our Catholic schools to have greater connection with the community. Uh, and, and by that, I mean that um, there is a sense of um, the, the Catholic school um, being in and part of the world that it exists in and part of the community and connecting um, as a hub with a whole lot of other services that intersect with education and that we're not just the schools over there doing its own thing. And I see there's an inevitability about that long term. I also think that we have the opportunity um, for the Catholic school, its other dimension has always been for it to be a, a faith-based place, a place where a student can come to have a close, personal, and hopefully one uh, sacramental relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, I think we can also, as part of doing that, um, add to the inherent dignity of a young person and offer them the opportunity to have um, that dignity recognised through pastoral care, their spiritual formation um, and their well-being. And those dimensions I think we can do better in the future because our young people are crying out for that sort of support. Um, so in some ways it's same, same but different. Um, and. Um, I think there are some opportunities that we can leverage off as we read the signs of the times. So speaking of the future, um, with the government asking us now to stay home as much as we can over the next few months, I'm thinking about taking up macrame. <laughs> and I've already warned my kids that they'll all be getting a lovely wall hanging for Christmas. Mm. So <laughs> they can't wait. So what fun thing or new hobby are you planning on taking up or doing to keep yourself entertained during fun, this time? Fun thing uh, that I'm going to take up as new. Well, yeah, what's something new that you're going to bring into your life? Uh, or how are you going to spend your time? Oh, this, that's two separate distinct questions. So how am I going to spend my time? Um, I'm a cyclist. Um, just, you know, and so often you know, men of my age are re referred to as middle-aged men in lycra or mammals. Just don't call me a very old man in tights. That's a vomit, okay? <laughs> and so I, I will um, uh, get on the bike uh, because that's, that's a thing that I do to keep myself sane and clear my head. Um, and fortunately at the moment, I'm able to exercise and I'll exercise by myself and um, I'll, con I'll continue to do that. I like to read um, research-based books that have applied research to, um, to our society. Um, and so I'm just finishing off a book called Range at the moment. And Range is about um, uh, the, the author of that book um, compared the pathway of Tiger Woods with that of Roger Federer and uh, the idea of becoming a specialist early in life or diversifying. And that really has really appealed to my imagination. So I like reading that style of book. 
Uh, I'll, I've got a couple of those lined up that I, I, I need to have a look at. Um, and I have a very eclectic and, and, and varied taste in music, so I'll, I'll listen to some music to do that, to keep me sane. It's some, one new thing I, I think I'd like to take up. Um, it could be dangerous for everyone here, but <laughs> I, I, I love music. I just I am tone deaf. I can't sing and I can't play a musical instrument. So I, um, I think I might try and learn how to play some sort of musical instrument maybe. Okay, and what? Well, uh, there's, a didgeridoo, there's a didgeridoo outside. Um, <laughs> that could be it, uh, or, but I, I, I don't know. Um, I really don't know. Well, you know what? There's some pretty um, sad renditions of people learning the guitar going around <laughs> on Facebook at the moment, so you can't do it any worse than some of those. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so this is our last question for you, Peter. Right. So any advice or final words that you would like to share with our listeners? Go gently. Okay. And that's it? <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Well, Go gently in these times. Yeah. Because uh, we need some gentleness and some kindness uh, always, but particularly at the moment. Um, and I think uh, that does define us uh, as human beings working in Catholic education. That's yeah, good advice. Well, Peter, thank you so much for our chat. Yeah, it's been good, Jo. I really love it. And um, with everything that's going on in the moment, I know how busy you are. I really do um, appreciate your support. My pleasure. Okay, thank you. I'm not doing it again. (laughs) (laughs) We don't need to. Was that what you expected? The podcast was produced by Catholic Education Diocese of Wollongong. Music provided by bensound.com. I'm Josie Cooks and thanks for listening in. Join us next time as we talk to other members of our Catholic school community about finding hope in the midst of our new normal.